Welcome to 30 Brave Minutes, a podcast of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. In 30 Brave Minutes, we'll give you something interesting to think about. I'm Richard Gay, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, and joining me today are Dr. Ashley Allen and Dr. Joanna Hersey, both Associate Deans in the College of Arts and Sciences. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. Eric Tracy, who joined the faculty at UNCP in 2011. Now get ready for 30 Brave Minutes. So, Dr. Tracy, please take a few minutes and tell us about yourself and your research. Well, as you said, I came here in 2011. Before coming to UNCP, I was a lecturer for five years at The Ohio State University. And I taught many of the same courses at Ohio State that I'm teaching here, such as Introduction to Psychology and Sensation and Perception. The reason that I was a lecturer at Ohio State is because I got my PhD there in Cognitive and Experimental Psychology in 2006. And also I graduated from the University of Buffalo in 2000 with my bachelor's degree in psychology. So to back up a bit, what I did my dissertation in was looking at how people might speak words a little bit differently, and then how we can recognize those variants uh, of the word. And that might have some real life implications. Say, for instance, you're speaking to somebody who maybe had a little bit too much to drink and they're slurring their words and they're not pronouncing the words as clearly as they could. Uh, would you still be able to identify what that person is saying? And the second main research project that I'm interested in is still in speech perception. But here I'm looking at how people recognize and identify personality characteristics of the speaker. So say, for instance, that somebody calls you on your cell phone. It's a wrong number, so you don't have that number programmed in your cell phone. You've never seen this person in your whole life. So you answer the phone, say hello. You realize the person is calling the wrong number. You hang up and maybe only talk to that person for 10 or 15 seconds. But even in that short period of time, you're able to identify some characteristics about that speaker. So for instance, if they are an older person or a younger person, if they're male or female, or specifically what I'm interested in is if they are gay or heterosexual. So what is it in terms of what the person is saying that leads us to those decisions? And I should clarify here that it may be a lot more obvious if the person is very upfront and says something about themselves or talks about something that may be associated with older people or younger people or gay people or straight people, but I'm not looking necessarily at the words that they're using, rather I'm thinking about uh, investigating how they actually say those words and how we can pick up on some of those cues, those verbal cues and what they are saying in order to make that distinction. What I'm currently working on, and Ashley kind of knows about this because I talk to Ashley a lot about the stats behind it and whatnot, is what personality characteristics we also associate with gay and heterosexual speakers. So when people talk, we can identify certain emotions or personality characteristics, like is the person sad? Or I should say, 
are they perceived to be sad? Are they perceived to be angry or happy? And I wanted to know, is there some intersection between sexual orientation and emotion? So are gay people perceived as being both gay and happy, for instance? Are heterosexual people perceived as being heterosexual and sad, for instance? So I was looking at this intersection between perceiving emotions and also perceiving sexual orientation. So in my paper, what I was interested in is from my earlier research, I had my sample of speakers, my sample of talkers. And so I knew from previous research which talkers were gay, which talkers were heterosexual. And then on top of that, which talkers were perceived as gay and which talkers were perceived as heterosexual. And those two things could be very different from one another. So for instance, I had one talker who everyone said, yes, that talker I perceive as being gay, when in fact that talker identified as heterosexual. So within my study, I selected four groups of talkers. So I had actual gay talkers who were perceived as gay, and then actual gay talkers who were perceived as heterosexual. And then on the other side, actual heterosexual talkers that were perceived as gay, and then actual heterosexual talkers who were perceived as heterosexual. And then I presented those talkers to listeners, and in the first phase of the experiment, I just had the listeners rate the talkers along various personality characteristics. So in no time in the experiment were they told this is a gay talker, heterosexual talker, sexual orientation was never mentioned at all. I just said, here are some talkers, rate them on these traits. And what I found, I looked at about eight different traits or so. And the talkers who were perceived as sounding gay, whether they were actually gay or actually heterosexual, but if they were perceived as sounding gay, they were perceived as sounding more confident to listeners. They were perceived as sounding more stuck up to listeners. And for the talkers who are perceived as sounding heterosexual, they were perceived as sounding more sad and more angry compared to the talkers perceived as sounding gay. So that was the first result that I had. I'm like, okay, there are these personality characteristics. So then my second thought was, well, what if I actually tell the listeners the actual sexual orientation of the talker? So if they know that they're going to hear a gay talker, would that perhaps lead them to thinking that the gay talker is more stuck up or more confident, or that the heterosexual talker is more angry and is more sad. And so I ran that experiment, and it turned out that that had no effect at all. If people knew the actual sexual orientation of the speaker, it didn't matter their perception of their personality characteristics. And then the third variation that I did was, what if I tell the listeners a lie? So they hear a gay speaker, but I'm telling them it's a heterosexual speaker. 
and then they still need to make this personality judgment. Would there be a difference there? And it turns out that there still was no difference. So regardless if they didn't know, they did know, or they were falsely told, it made no difference about their personality judgments. So it seemed that people were totally dismissing, not paying attention to the labels at all, but rather they were just using the speech itself in order to make those personality judgments. And in order to arrive at those eight choices, what I did as a pilot study is I had people listen to the speakers and then just write down anything about the speaker itself. So it was just open-ended at the beginning. Whatever you want to write down, write it down. And so from that point, I kind of picked out some common personality characteristics. And so it's from that pilot study that I came to those eight different personality characteristics. So they weren't just random ones. They were ones that were that were tested before. And it's interesting to see how that one study feeds into the other study, right? There's this preliminary study to come up with a list of personality traits, and then you yes. use for the next study. And it's interesting to see, at least for me, to see how the, there's a process involved in this, trying to uh, respect the integrity of your results. And I'm a little bit curious about your sample size, too. I think there are upwards of maybe 300 or so students or participants, I should say, in that. So I think a fairly large sample size. I think a large enough sample size to please the reviewers who are looking at the paper currently. So all of this, I actually, the personality paper, I wrote up and submitted back in February or so to a journal. It's actually a special journal for a professor I studied under in graduate school. He retired last year, so they want to do a special journal dedicated to him and research related to his ideas. So that's what kind of motivated me to really get this paper off the ground because I've been sitting on the data for a while. I'm like, well, I just have to start writing it up. And they accepted the abstract. So they're like, the abstract seems worthwhile enough for you to go ahead and write the paper. So crossing my fingers here. Excellent. We'll all cross our fingers with you and we'll look Thank forward you. to that coming out in, in publication. I know you have a really active research lab with students involved. So what is it that the students do in the research lab? And like, do they have a role in this process? What does that look like? The students usually are running the actual experiments themselves. So I usually bring research assistants in. I train them on the experiment itself. So I actually have, I tell them a little bit of background about the research. And then they actually sit through the experiment so they have an idea about what the participants are actually going to be doing within the study itself. And then from that point, they do a lot of the legwork of bringing participants in, reading them the instructions, putting them through the experiment, answering any questions I have, and then debriefing them at the end. I try to have the lab as active as possible with maybe three or four research assistants going at the same time, working with one another. So we can try to get as many people within the study as possible. So the research assistants are really good at getting that big sample size that we kind of mentioned earlier. So I'm very indebted to my research assistants. 
Now, I know they can't know the hypotheses sort of going into this study, right? Because they're they're serving as the experimenters and such. But when you do have your findings, what, you know, what has surprised them or surprised you the most when it comes to uh, some of these research findings that you've gotten? Uh, that I think they were just surprised about which personality characteristics were associated with which types of speakers. So I think that was really interesting to that. Yeah, no, that's fascinating, though. I mean, and just going back to, you know, your original experiment and this idea, why is it that someone can hear a phoneme and more often than not better be able to predict sexual orientation? That just seems crazy. So I can say two things to that point. So number one, one of the papers that I'm working on right now is I wanted to know which phonemes, which letter sounds people might be better at than others. So I looked at all of the vowels and all of the consonants in my corpus, and I just presented those to listeners and had them do gay or heterosexual. And what I found is people are really good at vowels. It didn't matter the vowel. People were able to say, this is the sexual orientation of the individual. When I gave them consonants, they weren't as good. The one consonant, unsurprisingly, that they were good at was the S consonant, because there is this stereotype that gay men lisp. So people are good at distinguishing gay and heterosexual speakers upon hearing S and some other consonants as well. And a lot of people before me have looked at S and what it is within S. There's a lot of higher energy within S that gay men produce. That higher energy is what the listeners are tuning into in order to make that distinction. What I'm hoping to do, though, given all these perceptual findings, I'm trying to partner with one of my colleagues out in Utah who has a lot of graduate students in linguistics so they could look at all of these different sounds and see where there are differences in the sounds. And then can we link up those physical differences in the sounds with the perceptual data? I find this so fascinating in the sense that we have a very interdisciplinary question here, right? I mean, you're in psychology. You're clearly working closely with linguists. That was one of the questions I had early on is how much work you've done with linguists to tease this apart. Yes. uh, You've worked with statisticians as well here to help you with this project. I think those collaborations can often be very fruitful. I was curious if the phonemes or the the words, etc., have been analyzed by a computer in any way to see the different wavelengths, to see if that there's something in that that's being picked up on. Hopefully this current project with the people from Utah. Okay. To, they, they can use different programs, computer programs or whatnot, to look at acoustic differences within the words themselves. Okay, so I have one more one more thought. With the vowels, yes. is, it, is it possible that it's just easier to pick up on pitch variation, the vowels? I would think so. So I think there's probably more variation in pitch with vowels. And I would also say my hunch would be, without actually doing the the analyses, that vowels are probably a little bit longer in duration 
than most consonants. So people just have more information overall within the vowels to make that distinction versus like a very short 20 millisecond sound to make that decision. The longer the duration, the more you could perceive the differences in pitch variation. curious about how you selected uh, both the phonemes and the words that were used in the study. For example, I could imagine a situation where you just have somebody say the words. That seems very fake and contrived. So I was curious if you like had them read a paragraph and then chop words out of it to as a way of getting a more natural intonation or, or in the like. When I first did this research, my original thought was based on the literature, that people are going to use S. So let's choose words that contain an S sound, like soap or niece or sad, for instance. And so I then thought, well, people are going to know, because I need to then say, are you heterosexual? Are you gay? To come in and read these words. And then people then might know, oh, there's a lot of S words here. So they they probably are looking at the stereotype of gay men listening. So maybe I'm going to talk a little bit differently, knowing what the experiment is about. So then I included a lot of filler words to try to mask all of these S words within them. And so I came up with a list of about 100 words. And then I had the participants read the word, the list of words, three times. So the first time they came or all at once. So the first go around, they're nervous. They have this headset on. They're in this weird lab. Someone's looking over their shoulder as they're repeating these words. They're really nervous. But then by the third time, they're bored. They want to get out of there. They just want their research credit. They don't care. So they stop being nervous and they start talking more naturally. So a lot of these speech samples that I've gotten. I take from the third instance that they had it, because those are more natural sounding words than the first ones. It just shows there's so many complex things to consider when putting together a study like this. I mean, many people probably would have never thought of that, but it, it is an interesting factor in the process. Yes. One technique that speech researchers have used is to actually kind of create a mini game mm. and then have the person be recorded during the game. So they're playing the game with the experimenter. And then during the game, they have to say certain words. Mm -hmm. And the participant thinks, oh, it's all about the game and what I'm getting at the end, where really I'm just interested in you saying the words. I don't care if you're winning the game or losing the game. So that could be another avenue that I could do in the future. I'm sure you'd get lots of volunteers from the students. 
Uh, you spoke earlier a little bit about how students help you with your research in the lab. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you're able to combine your research with the courses you teach here at UNCP? Yes. All of this research on speech perception is greatly tied into my sensation and perception class, where students learn how we go about seeing things, how our visual system works, and then also how our auditory system works, how we go about hearing things. And then I have a whole three lectures or three class periods on speech perception. So kind of really get into the nitty gritty. I get very excited about it and I hope my enthusiasm carries over to the students as well. And I do bring up a little bit of my research within the speech perception lecture where I tell students, you know, we're perceiving all these different things, but we can also perceive personality characteristics from the speech. And I try to tie that back in the class to visual perception as well. So there's a lot of research also out there that the way that we move, the way that we walk and carry ourselves can also tell people about our characteristics, male or female, the activity that we're doing, how we're feeling, that sort of thing. So I try to draw that connection to students and say, hey, you might not know it, but the way that you walk and the way that you talk, people infer things about you. So that's how I try to draw in the, the class with then actual research things. So students are like, oh, I get it. How your research comes back to what we are actually learning in class. And another class that I teach is the history of psychology. And what I've done in that class is try to pinpoint all the different areas in psychology that the faculty members are interested in or are teaching. So I think at one point, Ashley was teaching a course on personality theory. And so I have a whole lecture in the history of psychology about where those different personality theories came from, like Freud and I think and different ways of thinking about personality. And there's a whole lecture about the history of social psychology and social influence and social cognition. So I try to have the history of psychology be relevant to the students so that when they take another class with Dr. Allen, uh, with Dr. Charlton, with Dr. Regan, they're like, oh, this thing that they're talking about, I can link back to where it fits in with the greater context in the history of psychology. I think there's a lot to be said about the nonverbal communication, and it's interesting to see how you in incorporate that into your courses. You know, I, I'm trained as an art historian, so I'm, I'm very interested in nonverbal communication. I'm sure there are lots of opportunities for collaboration. Yes, like you said before, this research can go in many different directions. So not only so within psychology, the social psychologists like Dr. Allen, Dr. Charlton could say, oh, what about stereotyping? And the cognitive psychologists like me and Dr. Collier could say, what are the computations like in the mind? The linguists are thinking, oh, what is it in the speech itself? And then the statisticians could be like, we have all of this data. What are the best ways to go about analyzing the data? So lots of different fields can work together to come up with these answers. So do you have an idea of what direction the field's going in? Are there any like hot topics in the area of research? A lot of the things that I've seen lately is different languages being investigated. The 
older research that was done was just done with American, British, and Canadian English. But in the past couple of years, what I've seen is that now researchers from all over the world, from a lot of different languages, are looking at it. And one example I could think of, I think a paper from like last year, maybe, or the year before, looked at Mandarin Chinese. So a lot, there's a, I think to answer your question, it's going to, are there cross language similarities, differences? If you're an English talker and you hear maybe Mandarin Chinese, and you don't know what they're saying. Did you identify the sexual orientation of the speaker and vice versa? Yeah. So I think there's a lot more kind of cross-cultural work going on. Lots of possibilities out there, that's for sure. Yes, yes. yes. That's wonderful. Oh, I have one more question really quickly here. Earlier, yes. you mentioned that your lab assistants gets people to a computer and then people uh, do the questionnaire or participate in the process in front of the computer. So I'm wondering, is there a reason why this can't be done remotely? Is there some control factor that's done in there? Why Is there a way you could just throw this open to the web and collect gobs of data? Or does yes. it need to be in that controlled environment of your lab? So there is, I think Ashley's probably aware of it, uh, NTurk. Uh, I think through Amazon, is it, Ashley? That's great. So you could put a lot of these experiments online and then have people all, from all over the world come and do the experiment and they get paid some amount of money from it. I, I haven't done that yet. And the reason is, is especially when people are hearing just a single phoneme, it's very small. It's very specific and exact. And if someone's sitting at home at their computer. I don't know what the listening environment is like. Are they wearing headphones? Is someone talking in the background? And if they're not paying attention, they could miss that small, tiny letter sound and not respond to it. So I like it having it in the lab where it's quiet. I know that the headphones that the participants are using are high quality headphones. So I know that the sound is going to come out of it. Maybe if it was something longer, like paragraphs, then I could do it online. But something so small, I want it to be a lot more exact. And I don't think I can get that precision, so to say, if, if I'm trusting people at home. Probably not. We, we lose so much of our internal, that control to, to be able to show internal validity. And then if our effects are smaller, it's really hard to tease through all that noise and error and stuff so yeah um, but yeah that's a good point yeah yeah so it's just that lack of of internal validity it's just that lack of control that doesn't make me want to branch out of that way eric thank you so much you've given us so many ideas <laughs> i've certainly heard that okay, uh, thank you Dr. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today. You've given us a lot to think about. It's really exciting to see the work that's being done across the College of Arts and Sciences, and it's really uh, great to learn more today about what our colleagues in the Department of Psychology have been up to. So thank you so much for the work you're doing, the research you're doing, the work you're doing with our students, and uh, I hope you will share the podcast far and wide. Yes, yes, no, thank you for having me on.
This podcast was edited by Joanna Hussey and transcribed by Serena Maynard. And our theme music was created by UNCP Music Department alum, Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of the, its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go well.